Well, good morning. My name is Vic Anderson, and uh, I have the privilege of being with you while Pastor Steve is away. And I hope, I hope you can understand me. It's echoey in here to, today. <laughs> so we'll see if... Uh, I, will you do me a favor? If you cannot understand me because of words, will you just wave at me and I'll say it again or say it slower or something like that because uh, we, want to, we want to be clear as we talk with each as we uh, interact together. Um, I've just been looking forward to being here again on this Sunday to gather with you. I trust that you have come as well with a sense of anticipation of meeting with God and meeting with His people. Our uh, call to worship this morning declare, said that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And that it, and in Psalm 19, it speaks the the rising of the sun from the earliest of the day to the, the setting of the sun. And it says basically from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, the heavens shout out something about the glory of God. Well, on Sunday, it's fascinating to recognize that on this day, the people of God from sun up to sundown declare the glory of God. On this day, as the sun rose in one part of our world and has been, is making its progress around the globe, or the globe is spinning, so that the sun arises, it's always fascinating for me to realize that the people of God are rising up wherever they are, from New Zealand and Australia and Asia and across Africa and Europe and North America, South America. People of God are singing his praises this morning and declaring their allegiance to our God. And we get to be part of that because we are the people of God. The people of God called out from the world, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by his Spirit, and journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ will fill the earth. It's good to be together. So let's pray and ask God to um, awaken us to the truth of the Scripture so that we might be able to submit to Him and His will. And so, our Father, we do come to you this morning as your people. We have no claim of ourselves that you would listen to us or care for us except that you have, you have been gracious to us. And it is by your grace, through the work of your Son, that we can say, Oh, Father, you are our Father, and we are your sons and daughters. And as we have sung this morning, you are good. You are good to us, and you are good to keep your promises, and you are good to draw us into your family. Father, we do come with a confession that we are indeed a frail and broken people. That left to our own, we, we are swallowed in sin and we are deceived. And that we do not do what we ought to do and what we even want to do. Father, there are times that we simply go against what you say and tell us to do. And we confess we, we want your forgiveness for that even now. And there have been times this week when we knew the right thing to do and just failed to do it. And so we would ask your forgiveness of us. 
And Lord, we want your forgiveness because we want the closest fellowship possible with you. So draw us close to yourself. We come on behalf of your people around the world because we know that here in Ethiopia and in our home countries, that your people have opportunity to represent you as never before. We pray for the church, that whether it's persecuted, whether it's small, whether it's large, that you would give to your people a great measure of faith and that you would help us to represent the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth in every crevice and corner of this planet. We pray for Ethiopia. We pray for our leaders. Lord, those who are over us have great challenges. And we do not pretend to understand all the answers, but we know that you do. And so we ask that you would give to them a fear of God, the mayor of our city, those who run regional governments around our country, Prime Minister Abbey, Lord, would you, would you draw their hearts to you and give them somehow an ability to, to govern even by the principles of your word and help us to be submitting to you, our Father, even as we submit to a government. Father, we pray for families who are far away from us. Many of our IEC family are gone. We pray for Pastor Steve and his family. Lord, would you bless them, give them great refreshment during this rainy season. We pray for others who are traveling and have gone on leave. Lord, we look forward to seeing them again, and we ask that in these days they would be most aware of your presence with us. And now as we open our word, Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts, May we listen well, but not just listen. Lord, help us to submit and do what you have shown us in your word to do. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. All across Ethiopia, students in the high school grades especially are preparing for their national school exams. Every year it happens, and about this time, the awareness of the national school exams gets heightened, right? And there's a lot of nervousness because it is a, it is a big test. It, it's, a, it's a big test because it takes several days. It's, it's a big test because the outcome really influences the pathway that a student's life might take. And so students take the exam and then they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And there's one main question on everybody's mind as we wait. Did I pass? Did, did, I, did I score the minimum amount so that I've, I've, I've achieved the right result? Have I met the minimum requirements that I can go on with my education? But of course, this, this question of meeting minimum requirements, of, of making sure we've met the grade, that doesn't just happen in the school exam, the national exam, does it? It happens from first grade to university in some way. If you apply for a job, there will be a job description posted, and what does it say on the job description? Somewhere, maybe near the top, it says, minimum requirements. If you don't meet the minimum requirements, don't even apply. 
And, and if you're going to keep your job, often you will have to continue to demonstrate that you meet minimum requirements as you perhaps get promoted. And then, of course, there's retirement. If you're going to have a pension or if you're going to get uh, support from the government, you probably have to meet some minimum requirements, right? We just, we, our lives, we swim through a sea of minimum requirements. What's the bottom line that I have to be above in order to be acceptable? With all of that going on in our lives, it's not surprising that it often seeps into our Christian thinking as well. Uh, how much faith do I really need to please God? Or uh, how much money do I need to give for God to be pleased with me? Uh, how many times a year do I need to be in church? Uh, how much do I need to read my Bible in order to please God? We, we kind of naturally ask these questions of what does God expect of us? And perhaps no area is as concerning to us as the question of what does God expect from us in regard to showing love for others. What's the, what's the minimum requirement for, for kind of showing mercy to people in need? This morning, we're going to explore this concept, this question just a bit about the baseline requirements for showing mercy. This challenge of showing love and mercy to others seems to be, have you noticed, right in our face these days. You, you can't escape it. Walk down the street and you're confronted with people who are desperate for help. They have no money. They lack food. They lack good clothing. They usually need a bath. They could use a bed for a good sleep. They cannot work. Some are disabled. Some have severed limbs or leprous hands. And they all need someone to have mercy on them. So many people needing help at that level. Uh, people are suffering today in the north from, from hunger to infections to wounds of war to houses destroyed and families ripped apart. They need someone to have mercy on them. Refugees from Sudan and Somalia and Syria flood into our country, and they're homeless, and they are hurting. They have no work and nowhere to call home. They need someone to have mercy on them. And, and, and most of us, we have extended family, some of whom are hurting today, right? They need someone to have mercy on them. And we wonder, how much love and mercy do I need to show to please God? I mean, I can't do it all. What does God expect from me to get a passing grade? So, really the question we want to ask is this. How do kingdom citizens, you and I, who are on the way to the kingdom and really belong to the kingdom, on the way to our inheritance, how do we... 
How do we demonstrate love for others in a way that meets God's standards? How do we fulfill the requirement of God to love others? We're going to answer that question this morning by first exploring a story, a story that Jesus told with his disciples listening in and a story that had a tremendous shock to the people when he told it. And we're going to really try to understand what Jesus is saying, and then we'll talk a bit about what, what we want to do as we go through life in light of that teaching. So it's the teaching of Jesus followed by the actions for our day, and that's how we're going to go forward. Um, we're going to be in the, in the Gospel of Luke, and our story, you will recognize, has become legendary. You would say, oh yeah, the Good Samaritan story. I know that one. That's a good one. It's kind of a cute story. We tell it to our kids all the time. But my friends, when we really understand the story, it has a most shocking effect. We begin with a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, law, asking a couple of questions. And his questions are going to center on this. Jesus, what do you think are the minimum requirements for loving neighbor? Same kind of question that you and I might have. But he begins with a little bit broader question, and he asks about the kingdom inheritance. He's going to ask about his kingdom inheritance, and then he'll narrow it down to this real issue of loving neighbor. We are in Luke chapter 10, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there, where a legal expert questions Jesus about the law's minimum requirement. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29 to start. Follow along as I read from the Word of God. On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. Uh, How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Stop here for just a second. This lawyer, not a civil lawyer, but a legal expert in the law. This is a man who who understood the who specialized in the Jewish law, and, and he knew everything from the Ten Commandments to all the regulations that were supposed to be done by a Jewish person in order to please God. This is a man who came, and his business was to know and advise about the law. And he comes to Jesus in order to test him. Did you see it? So these are not exactly innocent questions from a curious mind. These are, these are questions from a man who says, I think I can do this better than Jesus. And so he, asked, he begins by asking a fairly broad question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's not really talking about how do I get saved, as you and I might think about it. He's really talking about, I know I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm part of the people of God. I'm a, I'm a Jewish person. I, I really want to know how do I make sure that I'm going to get my inheritance, okay, as a member of the kingdom? And so 
Jesus knows this is a test about his support for the law, the Torah from the Old Testament. And so Jesus replies, uh, what, does it, what does the law tell you? And of course, the man cites two great statements from the, uh, the Old Testament law about loving God and loving neighbor, right? And, and the, 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 the point here is that uh, this is what the law requires. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. Do this and you will live. Now, a couple of quick clarifications about these statements. Jesus is not saying you work your way to salvation, you work your way into the kingdom, right? Do this and you will live. He's, he's saying that the pathway to your inheritance is indeed honoring the law that God has given you, which is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Second clarification. Jesus is not saying you should love yourself. Every once in a while, I hear people interpret this as, oh, the Bible teaches us to love ourselves. That's not what the point is. The point is, you do love yourself, meaning you do all you can to care for yourself and, and keep yourself alive. We're all pretty good at recognizing that we want to stay alive. And what Jesus is saying, the summary of the law is, do for your neighbor as you naturally do for yourself. Care for your neighbor's life as much as you care for your own life. Do this and you'll live. You'll be on your way to the inheritance. Pretty good, right? So, the lawyer's happy. Well, I don't know if the lawyer's ever happy. The lawyer should be happy. And Jesus is happy. And that could be the end of it all. But no, no, no. The lawyer isn't very smart. He doesn't walk away with his mouth firmly shut. Instead, he has something else to ask. And he says, who then is my neighbor? If the issue is love your neighbor as yourself, who is my neighbor? And the text tells us that This man is looking to justify himself. The statement is there in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? The lawyer's expectation was likely that the neighbor for him was very narrowly defined. A neighbor would have to be an Israelite. A Gentile wouldn't be his neighbor. A neighbor would likely be a man. A woman can't be his neighbor. A neighbor would have to be someone who is not a sinner, a righteous Israelite. And some of the teachings of that day in the literature of the rabbis suggested that a neighbor was someone three minutes walk or less from your house. So you get it? A neighbor isn't everybody. A neighbor is an Israelite, male, not a sinner, who lives within three minutes walk of your house. This is what was being debated in the day. And so he wants to know, if you define neighbor like I define neighbor, then I have a passing grade. I've met the minimum requirements. 
So now our question really is in sharp focus, right? How does a kingdom, kingdom citizen demonstrate God's love in a way that pleases God? But in his answer, Jesus is going to completely turn the tables on him. And he will be in shock. Because Jesus is going to say that kingdom citizens demonstrate love for others by extreme mercy. Kingdom citizens demonstrate love for others by extreme mercy, by radical compassion regardless. Extreme mercy? Radical compassion? Sounds pretty hard to believe, even frightening when I hear these words. Is that really what God requires? Well, let's look and see. Kingdom citizens engage in extreme mercy regardless. That is going to be what Jesus will reveal. He does it through a parable, right? A story about a Samaritan, a story that you know well. And yet it's good for us to read it and read it carefully. We're in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away. They left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and, and when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and, and then, then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Stop there. Jesus paints a picture, a shocking picture, of extreme mercy. I'm suggesting to you that this is a shocking story, and even though we've kind of made it a cliche. We just kind of say, you know, 
yeah, when someone does a good job, when someone does something nice, we call them a, a good Samaritan. And we kind of think of it as a nice, pleasant thing to say. Yeah, we mean a compliment by it. Oh, it's a, it's a good Samaritan. But in the first century, there is no way you would put good and Samaritan together. That just wouldn't work, right? Samaritans could not be appreciated. They could not be complimented. And the label was nothing short of odd and shocking that we would think of a Samaritan doing a good thing. And, and I want to suggest to you that there are three major reasons why this story is so shocking. And one is just the fact that the, the, the hero of the story is a Samaritan. It's not the esteemed religious leaders that we would expect. We expect the priest. Nope. We expect the Levite. Nope, it's a Samaritan, a despised half-breed that lived in that region just northwest of Jericho. Um, (laughs) Jesus asks, who's the one who showed mercy at the end of this story? And I I can kind of hear this this, uh, legal expert say, it was the Samaritan. It was the one who showed mercy. I mean, he can't even say Samaritan. It's such a despicable idea to him. Surely the priests, Levites, the expected heroes, surely they have their reasons for passing, right? Maybe they're justified in their avoidance some way. No, 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 sorry. Jesus doesn't give them any excuses. There's no justification for their negligence. The story just says they look, they see, and they pass by. Such a shock that the Samaritan is the one who is a hero. For several hundred years, Samaritans had been despised because they were not blooded Jews. You see, after the exile, when the Assyrians came, and, and during the exile, when the Assyrians came from the, from the east and invaded the land of Palestine, it was the Samaritans who intermarried with the Assyrians. They were half-breeds. And then later, when Alexander the Great came through the land, the Macedonians came into the land of Samaria, and they intermarried with them. So now they're half-breeds or quarter-breeds. They call themselves Jews, but they don't even worship at Mount Zion. Instead, they have their own mountain, Mount Gerizim, to worship. So when Jesus paints this story that a Samaritan is the one who shows mercy, it had to be shocking, completely unexpected. I think we miss it. I wonder if Jesus was telling the story today, if he, if, he, if he might say something like this. Uh, there was a man, a homeless man, who got struck by a vehicle, it seems, and he was lying on the road near Tor Hiloch. He was in pretty bad shape. His, his clothes were torn, and, and he was bleeding. Uh, he looked like he could barely move, and as he laid there, kind of groveling in the gravel and in the chicka. He was groaning and moaning. 
Surely he needed help. Shortly, a, a car came by, and in the car was a, a, from a local church. There was a pastor and an elder and their wives, and, and they had just come from having a very, very nice dinner down on Bowley Road. And as they approached the man, their headlights hit the, hit the man, and they, they saw him there, and, and, and the pastor's wife said, you know, um, maybe we should call an ambulance. And then the elder looked at the pastor and said, well, I, I suppose we could, but really uh, there's some other people coming behind us, and they'll probably know what to do. And the pastor said, yeah, this is a dangerous part of town. We really shouldn't stop here at night. And so they moved on and passed him by. And then a short while later, there was another vehicle that came, and this car, there was some seminary and Bible college students. They had been talking about the problem of evil in the world. They were having a great theological discussion. But they saw the man on the side of the road, and so, and so when they saw him, they stopped and even, even got out with a flashlight to, to kind of inspect more closely. One of the students said to the other, oh, this fellow, he's in a really bad condition, which prompted them again to think about the problem of evil and how a good God could make, let something like this happen. And they were quite caught up with their conversation, and they finally concluded they really needed to get back to the school to finish their homework, so they got in the car and they drove on. A short while later, a third vehicle came upon the man. It was a, it was a taxi. But in the taxi was a, 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 a man from Afghanistan. He doesn't, he, he was like a refugee that had kind of relocated to Addis Ababa. And he was a Muslim man. And he looked at that man who had been beaten, hit by a car. And he, he went out and he checked him over and he, took off his coat and wrapped the man in it because it was going to be very cold. And he, and he picked up the man and he, he, he brought him into the taxi and put him next to him. And, and, the, and the man was bleeding, so he took out his, his handkerchief and he, he dabbed the man's blood and held it there and said, take us to the closest hospital. And this Muslim man of mercy went and paid the hospital for all the expenses and said, here's my mobile. If you need to reach me, please call me. I'll be happy to cover the rest of the expenses. And we wonder, who is the one who acted like a neighbor? You see, if Jesus had told a story like that, we probably all would sit and kind of cower back, right? This is not what we expect, that a man who has a brother from the Taliban is going to be the hero of a parable. Jesus said, it's the Samaritan who is the hero of this story. But the shock even increases as we see the extreme degree of mercy that the Samaritan demonstrates. This is really quite phenomenal. Um, the, 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 there, there are several things here that the Samaritan does that makes his, the extent of his mercy quite remarkable. 
He does it regardless, regardless of who the man is, regardless of what caused his problem, and regardless of how much cost there is. Did you notice? So the Samaritan comes up and, you know, he, he doesn't go up and say, huh, I wonder if this guy is a Samaritan or not. He doesn't check out his ethnic identity. In fact, the beaten man is probably a Jew because he's in Jewish territory. He, he doesn't really seem to care if the man is rich or poor. By this point, he's probably poor because he's been beaten and his possessions have been taken. He doesn't really seem to indicate uh, any problem with the fact that the man is a loner. Where is this guy's family? Why isn't his family taking care of him? But none of it matters. The Samaritan shows extreme mercy regardless of the identity of the individual. It's extreme because the Samaritan takes action regardless of why, regardless of the cause of this man's condition. You know, he could have thought, this guy must be a sinner. I'll bet he did something to deserve this. I'll bet God is not happy with him. No. He just went and gave him mercy. And maybe, maybe this guy owed people money, and they came and they rightfully beat him up and took their money back. Uh, no. Maybe he voted for the wrong Pharisee. We actually don't know what the cause of the suffering is. It doesn't seem to matter. The Samaritan shows mercy regardless of the man's identity. He shows mercy regardless of the cause of the problem. And he shows mercy regardless of the cost. You notice that I'm sure. It cost the Samaritan something for bandage. He probably did not have a backpack with him with, with bandages and wraps and, and tape and, and everything you would need to help somebody. Perhaps he had to tear his own clothes in order to bandage this man's wounds. It cost him in terms of oil and wine to care for this man's wounds. It cost him at least two days' wages at the inn. A denarii is about what a person made per day in, this era, in that era. This was costly. It, it cost him time to care for him, it, to get him settled, and then to come back and check on him. It, it, it could have even cost him his own health and well-being. What if bandits attack him while he's taking care of this guy? What if this man has a contagious disease and he's picked him up and put him on his donkey? There's great risk and cost involved. But I find it shocking the degree of mercy extended by the Samaritan, regardless of identity, regardless of cause, regardless of cost. With all of that, there remains one other shocking element to this story, and it has to do with the way Jesus positioned it. Because Jesus changed the question from finding a definition of the limit of personal responsibility 
and instead showed how it would, he would expand personal responsibility. Remember the focus of the, of the question from the lawyer, who is my neighbor? And he wants to define that as small as possible, right? But Jesus asks a different question that doesn't focus on the minimum standards. Before we get to Jesus' question, we might think about how this, how this lawyer is hearing the question and hearing the story. Who's my neighbor? Well, the priest walks by and looks at him and says, I'm passing by. Oh, the priest must know that's not his neighbor. Uh, and then the Levite comes. And the Levite, he sees the man and he passes by. So, oh, the lawyer concludes, the Levite knows this man is not his neighbor. He's feeling pretty good maybe so far about the way this is going, right? And then the Samaritan comes by and the Samaritan issues help. And so, okay, it must mean that the Samarit- that's the neighbor to a Samaritan. That's how the story goes. And Jesus will say, no, no, no. Because here's the question. Of the three, of the three, which one was a neighbor? Who was being neighborly? Who was showing the true characteristics of being a neighbor? You see the difference? We're not trying to define who is a neighbor out there. We're trying to understand what makes you a neighbor in here and with the way that you act. The reply of Jesus means that God is not interested in minimum standards. Hear me carefully. Jesus is not interested in minimum standards. He's not interested in a question of what does it take to pass? Kingdom citizens are not concerned with with limiting their responsibilities. Jesus says, let me expand your personal responsibility. Jesus heard the lawyer's question, and he went, beep, wrong question. Let me change your thinking. Because the issue is not external motivation by a law, it's internal motivation that the law points us to. And my people of grace, my friends, grace points us in the same direction and pulls us there. Jesus has one statement of application. I love it. Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, it's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and be like a Samaritan. Oh, that had to hurt. Imagine that, a Jewish authority, an expert in the law, well-educated, a man of status, a man esteemed by the people, he was told to go and be like a Samaritan. And Jesus is saying, this is not a concept to be debated. It is an action to be practiced. Be a neighbor. Do it. 
And if that was true for someone being guided by the law, how much more for us who are motivated by grace, for us who have been shown such mercy by God to have in front of us the opportunities to show extreme mercy everywhere we go. My friends, we must reach out to our hurting world with radical compassion, regardless of identity, regardless of cause, regardless of cost. And the opportunities abound for us. We are surrounded by a world of hurt everywhere. Some are inside our homes, people crying out for compassion because they need our help. Some are the hurting in the houses on your street. They live in fear of domestic violence or even that their houses will be repossessed or they'll be kicked out. Some of the hurting people are children and teenagers walking our streets after school. They go home to empty houses where there's no father or mother. They need a substitute father or mother or they will be giving in to the temptation of drugs and violence. Some of the hurting people are working at the grocery store in the souks where you go and shop. They're worried about their marriages. They fear that they're not going to make it financially. And some people, of course, are standing in front of you on the streets with sad eyes and open hands. They need someone to show compassion. Some are hurting from COVID or cancer. And many of them, of course, live north of here in Tigray, where homes and families have been shattered. And we have an opportunity to show extreme mercy. Hurting people come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. They come with different skin colors. They've been victimized by different kinds of bandits and beatings. But they all provide for us this opportunity to show mercy. Extreme mercy. Radical compassion. May I suggest to you that our first step is to see them? To, to, to see them. Somehow we can walk through life blind. I, it happens. I, I understand. I have this problem. I become numb. Numb because the problem is so overwhelming. Numb because hurt and pain is everywhere. Numb because, because the, the, we live in a world of hurt. And it's easy to walk through with my eyes closed, just numb. Got to open our eyes. And not say, oh, he's not my neighbor. She's not my neighbor. I feel it with you. We're afraid that we're going to get sucked into their suffering and it'll be too much for us. Hurting, helping hurting people is dangerous. Uh, we, we may be suspicious of their suffering, that, you know, we're getting 
conned by somebody who's not really suffering. They're just faking it. They're just putting on a show to get sympathy. And my friends, sometimes that happens, no doubt. But, but be careful not to let such... And we want to deal wisely in those situations. But, oh, be careful that that, that, that excuse doesn't become a justification to pass by all the people and say, they don't really need it. It's easy to defer to a humanitarian organization or maybe a government handout. We, we, we can go by them because we know that the Red Cross or the USAID or World Vision or some other great organization will render aid. Or maybe we figure that, that mercy can be shown only by those or primarily by those who have the spiritual gift of mercy. It's not my gift, so I don't need to do it. No, no, no. It's easy to pass by on the other side. We hate to give mercy when we think the person doesn't deserve it. And this has been hard for many of us, I understand. Because you've experienced violence and you've experienced the unjustified agony of people from other ethnic groups, whether they were Hutu or Tutsi or Tigrayan or from the south or from the north or from a Muslim background or their skin is too dark or their skin is too light or they're just too lazy and you know they really don't deserve our mercy. And it's easy to pass by. Regardless, Jesus says. The bottom line is I don't like showing that much mercy. I'd rather say Xavier Yustelin. I'm really happy to give a little bit of mercy, a little container of compassion, a comfortable amount. But I confess I'm too much like a lawyer who wants to find a good reason to say, I've done enough. I'll pass by on the other side. And my friends, Jesus is saying to us today, we have incredible opportunity to show extreme mercy in a world of hurt. It's not about being guilty. It's about recognizing that from our hearts we can be motivated, right, to use all of the capacity we have to show mercy to others. We need to call Jesus calls all of us to this kind of mercy. Perhaps it's a listening ear for an emotionally distraught person. I've seen you do that. It's good. Sometimes mercy is a smile or a hug or a word of encouragement. You invest your time in someone to help them along. I've seen IUC people excel at that. It's wonderful. You know, it's amazing how a listening ear and a warm hug can be bandage for emotional wounds. Mercy is shown when you assist an elderly person to her car, or you stoop down and show value to a hyperactive child who everybody else considers a rabash. You can show compassion by giving a ride to someone in your car, by giving a meal, by giving your time, giving your money, 
We show mercy in our five loaves program when we bring food and clothing and, and gifts for people in our community all around here. I would love it if every morning when I pulled in the parking lot, I saw a line of people with stuff, food, canned goods, um, clothes. How wonderful to bring it and so that the church can find the people to distribute it to. Extreme mercy. My friends, will you join me in fighting this urge to pass by? May God give us such grace. I I suppose that much of our lives will continue to be guided by the minimum standards. We, we do need to know the passing grade for a class and, and what we have, the minimum standards for keeping our job or getting a new one. But when it comes to showing mercy, we're not looking at minimum standards. We're looking at showing extreme mercy with every opportunity that we're given. And in the process, people see a merciful God through us. May God help us. And so, our Father, we confess to you that we, we want to be like that Samaritan. We want to be extreme, lavish, radical in our mercy and compassion that we give to others. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you will make us that kind of people. We pray because we are kingdom citizens. We are headed toward the inheritance you have for us. So we want to be generous along the way. For Jesus' sake, amen.